You are listening to a message from Foothills Church in Miraville, Tennessee. More information about Foothills Church can be found online at foothillschurch.com. All right. Well, good morning. Wasn't that awesome? <clears throat> Man, that was great. Good stuff. I didn't want that to end. Like, I'd come back out and let's do that one again. And it was really cool to kind of see the, the energy in this room today and so many of you guys going after Jesus and, and just responding to him and uh, a lot of feedback from last Sunday's sermon. And so it's cool to kind of see evidence of how God is working in this place. And so uh, it, it, it's cool. It's awesome to see that. And uh, today we want to continue in our sermon series um, entitled No Place Left. We're going through the book of Acts. If you've got your Bibles, let's go to chapter 18. I'll be in chapter 18 and 19 today. If you know anything about leadership or, or you've read anybody uh, on leadership, you know a guy by the name of John Maxwell. I mean, he's written uh, so many books on leadership, and, and I'm sure you've read many of them. And uh, one of the, the most basic principles of leadership that he teaches uh, in many of his books uh, is, the, is the law of the lid. And the, the idea is that uh, how we lead and our, our ability to lead uh, is, is going to impact our effectiveness. And so uh, no matter, you know, if you're leading one or two people or, or you're leading an organization or you're leading a ministry, no matter what capacity of leadership you have, and leadership just means that you have influence over uh, various people and, and that influence is your leadership. And so we, we all have leadership lids in our life though. And so the leadership lid in your life is, is what's preventing you from uh, leading more effectively. And uh, we all have them. And so uh, may, maybe it's fear, maybe it's anger. Um, it, it could potentially be one of, of, of your leadership lids. I, I know fear is a driving force in a lot of people. And so if you're afraid to pull the trigger, you're afraid to take a risk, you're afraid to, to step into areas uh, that you feel that you're supposed to step into, but for whatever reasons you just resist, uh, that, that leading in that fear is a leadership lid in your life. And so it could be you know, how you relate to people. So your interpersonal skills could be a, a leadership lid or, or maybe your emotional IQ. In other words, how you, you know, handle your emotions and deal with those uh, emotions that come your way could be a leadership lid. I mean, we could go on and on and we all have various leadership lids in our life. And, and those are things that are keeping you from having the, the greatest impact upon the people that you lead. And so it's important that we identify those leadership lids and remove them so that we, we can become a more effective leader, so that we can become a, a more devoted, more mature follower of Christ. And so in our scripture today, we're going to identify three leadership lids that could be in your life as a leader. And if you'll take these to heart and you'll confess, repent, and, and seek to grow in those areas by, you know, reading books on it and, and uh, having accountability in your life on that specific issue and set goals on those specific issues, then, then you can grow um, in those areas. And so that's the great thing about leadership lids is that you can remove them and you can, you can address them and you can move forward and grow. And so we want to identify them in our scripture today. I think it will help you greatly as a leader. Well, in chapter 18, we're going to start in verse 24, but I do want to kind of give you a summary of the first part of the chapter. So Paul, uh, he, he goes to the city of Corinth and he meets two refugees there named uh, Priscilla and Aquila. And they were living in Rome and because of the government there forcing them out because they were Jews, uh, they had to leave Rome. So they find themselves in Corinth. 
Paul meets them there. We don't know about their conversion experience, uh, but we do know that they're followers of Christ. And so uh, they are tent makers. And, um, and so Paul also has that trade in his background. And so they work together. And that's how uh, Paul really subsidizes income for a season here in Corinth until uh, money was brought from another church that was given to him so that he could go into uh, full-time work there in that city. But uh, so he meets them. Persecution breaks out uh, against his teaching, as is the norm in whatever city uh, he goes to to preach the gospel. And they try to take him to court for what he is teaching. And instead of you know, the law, you know, coming down hard on him, it actually falls upon Sosthenes, great name, right? He was the ruler and leader of the synagogue. And and because he kind of brought him in and tried to do this, it didn't work out. He gets beat up. So it's kind of a funny part of the story. But um, Paul is rescued from that. And he continues to go to Syria, uh, Galatia, uh, Phrygia. And, and, and so he continues to go into these areas preaching the gospel and uh, building churches. And so at the end here of chapter 18, though, is where I want to focus. We come to a man by the name of Apollos. And so I want to see what the Lord uh, does in his life and apply it to our life today. So if you guys the word with you today, we're starting in verse 24. It says, now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures, He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. Speaking of John the Baptist. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, that's Corinth, The brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Now, here's what I love about this part of the story. This this man, Apollos, he is described as a Jew. Um, He is described as an eloquent man. Uh, He's described as competent in the scriptures. So he knew the word of God. At this time, it would have been the Old Testament. So he knew the the scriptures and he knew how to teach them. And he was instructed in the way of the Lord, which meant that somebody had discipled him. And so we believe that he is a follower of Jesus at, at this point. It's not specifically clear, but when it says that he is fervent in spirit, it shows us that, man, the Spirit of God was alive in him and, and caused him to be fervent, caused him to be passionate about the way of the Lord, as, as it explains here. And so he's teaching boldly. He's teaching what he knew. He was teaching about Jesus. However, something in his teaching was lacking, and it had to do with baptism. He knew about the baptism of John, But in some way, he was inadequate, he was deficient in his teaching about believer's baptism or Christian baptism. And so he was teaching it incorrectly in some way. We don't know exactly how he was teaching it incorrectly, but it was incorrectly. And so Priscilla and Aquila, uh, they hear him teach and they take him aside and they coach him and they, they instruct him on the way of God, uh, specifically about baptism, apparently. He receives this coaching, and then the text says that he goes on to Corinth. They send a letter of recommendation saying, hey, this guy Apollos is coming. Thumbs up. Dude is awesome. You're going to love him. 
right? So they give him some props and some credit there. And when he gets there, it says that he greatly helps them. And it says that he powerfully refutes the Jews in public, showing them by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. And so he goes on to have an effective ministry. He, he leads at a higher capacity because of this coaching experience with Priscilla and Aquila. Now, later, Paul writes these letters to the church in Corinth, First and Second Corinthians. He writes a letter to the church in Ephesus, Ephesians, and he mentions Apollos. So Apollos becomes a great friend. He becomes a great leader in the early church. And so this is important to us because Apollos had a leadership lid in his life. He wasn't aware of it. He's teaching what he knew, but something in his teaching was deficient. And so someone had to coach him. Someone had to share with him, hey, bro, you're doing awesome. This is great, but, but you're wrong in this area. He receives that coaching that leadership lid is lifted, and he goes on to have an incredibly powerful ministry. And so if you're taking notes today, if you want to lift the leadership lids in your life, you've got to submit to a coach. You've got to be willing to submit to someone else who's a little bit further along than you that can coach you and help you identify some lids, potential lids in your life. Now at FC, we have a coaching culture I am coaching staff, uh, they are, and, and our elders are coaching each other and me. I told you a few weeks ago that, that I actually have a coach. He's a church planner, a very successful pastor that speaks into my life. Why? Because I want to grow. I want to identify those lids in my life so that this church can continue to do everything that God calls us to do. If you're a small group leader, you have a coach Part of our leadership structure is that uh, coaching is in place for you. Why? Because those coaches are trained to help you advance and grow and lift those lids in your life so that you can lead your group better. If you're serving in any capacity in our church, you either have a team leader over you and at, above the team leader is a coach speaking into the team leader who then speaks into those who are volunteering. Why is this important? Because we all need coaching. We all need to submit to someone in our life that can help us. And let's not forget that. We're, we're, we have coaches because we believe they can help us grow. They can identify some blind spots in our life that we can then address and move forward. Apollos would have never known that he was deficient in that area unless someone spoke that truth into his life. Now, some of you reject coaching. Some of you were on a, a team, and if you were ever, uh, you know, an athlete and you played on a sports team, you always had that one guy on the team that didn't want to listen to the coach, that didn't respect the coach. And what happened as a result of that at least one guy, maybe two guys on the team? Well, it always caused division, didn't it? It always uh, caused, you know, uh, the play not to run smoothly. Uh, he, he or she was always that one that was kind of dragging their feet, their attitude, their, 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 their body language. Just, just really killed the dynamics of the team. And so, you know, I had a coach in high school that said, Trent, if I tell you that wall is green, what color is that wall? And he trained me to say, that wall is green. <laughs> and it could have been white or blue or whatever. You know, whatever he told us to do, we did. If he told us to run through a brick wall, we would have done it. And, and, and we were that coachable and that impressionable at that time in our life. And, and I'm not telling you to to run through a brick wall. Uh, however, we do have to submit 
to coaching in our life. And uh, those that would reject that would, would fall into a, a mentality, a prideful, self-righteous mentality that would say, you know what, don't need it. I'm good, bro, don't need that help, right? I don't need you speaking into my life. Like, I've got this, I know how to do it, right? Very, very prideful, egotistical, self-righteous way to think. Proverbs 18:2 says, a fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. Like, we have people in our life like that, don't we? They love to express their opinion, but they do not take pleasure in understanding. Someone speaking into their life. Proverbs 5.12 says, How I hated discipline, and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. You see, it's, it's huge that we have a submissive heart allowing people to speak into our life. And I see in a lot of you know, church cultures, it's this self-righteous mentality. We're afraid to admit that we don't know it all. Our marriages, you know, are struggling. Finances are struggling. Emotionally, half the time we're a wreck. We feel inadequate as parents, right? If you're single, you know, you're, you're, you're stressed about finding that perfect somebody, right? If you've been divorced, you're stressed about, you know, how the divorce is affecting your kids and your remarriage. And it's like every part of our life feels like at times is in shambles and we're stressed. And then we walk into church and we're like, good, bro. Got it. Don't need any help. I know how to do it. What is that? It's pride. Pride leads to a fall, right? We've got to get over our pride. We've got to get over our ego. Check that at the door and realize, you know what? I don't know it all. I need somebody speaking into my life. And that's scary. I get it. That's scary to say, okay, yeah, speak into my life. What do you see? Because you're going to see something that's not perfect. And in my mind, I think I'm pretty doggone perfect. (laughs) And if you share something about me that I'm not doing perfect, guess what? Now I'm bowing up. Now I'm arguing. I'm proving my point. And and you don't know. And and what good does that do for your leadership? Takes you nowhere. Start spinning your wheels, right? Right? I love to see this example so clearly how Apollo submits to this leadership. Now, so the takeaway is not that everybody here should walk away and start sharing your opinion with everybody. Like, Trent, actually, point number two really stunk today. And so let me just, you know, that's not the point. The point is not to go to your leaders, and the point is not to go to people that you disagree with or that you see some imperfection. The, the point is to, to submit to a coach in your own way. And so uh, I know that's a temptation because there's a lot of people, especially in church, especially in athletics. My goodness, coaches and pastors take a lot of heat in the world today. Um, but but I, would say, I would say, like, there are those perfectionist analytical thinkers in the room who always tend to see the glass half empty and always tend to think that they could do a better job than everybody else. Can I get an amen? Does anybody know people like this in their life? And so they, they think it's their spiritual gift to tell everybody else how they're not doing things exactly the way that it should be done, right? 
And so that's not the point of this text, like to become an inflamed. See, that's the temptation for the analytical, um, you know, thinkers in the room who are perfectionists. You're going to tend to want to do that. And that's not the calling here. And so three principles for coaching that I wanted to share real quickly. And the, the first one is this. If you're going to coach somebody, you've got to be in a trusting relationship with him or her. There's got to be a trusting, mutual relationship there. It's, it's them saying, yes, I, I want you to coach me. And it's you saying, yes, I am your coach. And so there's a, a leadership structure in place there. There's a trusting relationship that has been established. If you're trying to go up to somebody that you don't know and say, dude, you just blew it on this and you didn't, that's not right. That's not going to go well for you or for that person. Like they're not going to receive that very well at all. And so there's got to be a trusting relationship there. But secondly, it's got to be this, this genuine care and concern for this person. Like you've got to love that person. And if this person doesn't sense that you love them, chances are they're not going to receive that coaching. And so there's got to be a genuine mutual love for that person. And then thirdly, coaching is done at the right time and at the right place. You'll notice here in the, in the passage that Priscilla and Aquila take him aside, the scripture says. They took him aside. They didn't call him out on Twitter. They didn't call him out in front of the crowd. They take him aside and they, they, they have a conversation with him. And, and I think that's so important as we think through this lens of how you know, we receive it and how we give coaching. Now, Priscilla and Aquila, this is a different sermon, but I I do feel like I needed to share this because I get excited about it. Priscilla is the woman. It's a feminine uh, gender in the Greek. And then uh, Aquila is the guy, right? And so they're mentioned together and they're, uh, they're, they're married most likely. And she is always mentioned before him. Now that is a big deal in, in first century writings, period. Because you, you didn't take coaching from a woman back then. And you certainly didn't talk about taking that coaching. And you certainly didn't put the woman's name, you know, traditionally before her husband's name. So, so this is very intentional in the writing of the New Testament. So I would say that different sermon, but it's really important that if a woman is your coach, guys, men in the room, submit to that coaching and leadership. Like just because she is a female doesn't mean, and guys do it all the time, I'm a dude, right? They're talking to me, I know what I'm doing, right? We get that, that egotistical, self-righteous attitude. We kind of puff up and uh, scripture's clear. Like that, it's very right and good for women to be in various leadership roles in the life of the church. And so if you've got daughters in the room, if you are a parent of a daughter, teach them, train them, equip them to be godly women who know and have confidence to lead. Right, so we see it all throughout the New Testament. This is groundbreaking um, writing and teaching. And so I think a lot of people think that Christianity really pushes women down. But when you, when you read it, you see this and it's like, no, that's very intentional here. So just a side note, different, different topic, but I thought worth mentioning here. So we see a man who is submitting himself to a coach. And so let me just ask you, have you submitted yourself to a coach? in the life and, and, and breadth of this ministry and, and of this church? Is someone speaking into your life? Are you in a small group? And have you, have you encouraged that small group leader to coach you? The coach in our ministry structures, have you encouraged them to coach you? Hey, tell me. Hey, listen, I know the people in this church that want to grow the most. 
because there's an obvious hunger there. There's an obvious, you know, hunger there. And I, I know it because of the questions they ask. If you're a hungry leader, and by the way, leaders are learners. So if you're not learning, then chances are you're not leading. And the way that you learn is you ask questions. And so if you're asking questions to your coaches and your small group leaders and your pastors and you're asking at work, like that shows a teachable spirit. And I've, I've seen people in their 60s and 70s who have a teachable spirit about them. And then I've seen, you know, teenagers, those in their 20s, not. And so it doesn't have anything to do with age. It has everything to do with your heart. Are you teachable? Are you coachable? Have you submitted to a coach? I think that's a huge point for us today. Let's move on to chapter 19, and let's see the next group of people facing another leadership lead in their life. Verse 1, it says, And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. So now he's in Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism, John the Baptist and his baptism. Verse 4, and Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There was about 12 men in all. So chapter 19, Paul goes to Ephesus and he comes to uh, 12 disciples, most likely disciples of, of John. And he realizes that something's not quite right here. Apollos is described as a, as a man competent in the scriptures. He'd been taught in the way of the Lord. So we believe that, that he had come to faith in Jesus. He was just teaching inaccurately in some place. This group of men, something was a little off and, and different. And so Paul asked a question. Hey, did you guys receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And their response is like, the Holy who? What are you talking about? Like, no, we didn't receive the Holy Spirit. We didn't even know there was one. So we would believe, I, I believe this group of, of men didn't even have their faith in Jesus. They didn't know the, the, the gospel. They didn't know the full story here. And so Paul speaks into their life the full story of the gospel. And when they hear that, oh, John's baptism was, was a way to prepare the way of the Lord. You remember, he's the guy that was eating wild locusts in the wilderness and his, you know, had camel's hair as his clothes, you know, and, and he was baptizing people uh, to repent. And so John's baptism was a preparation for the coming Messiah. So he was, he was baptizing people, yes, under the water, uh, coming up out of the water, and their attitude was, yes, I'm turning from sin, and I'm, I'm waiting for the coming Messiah. And Paul says, no, 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 like that's cool and all, but that's not Christian baptism. That, that's not what, what we're, we're really after here when we talk about baptism. And so he explains the gospel, they receive the Holy Spirit, and then they are, in fact, baptized. And so that's an important point for us, and, and really it's the second point today, is that if you want to lift some leadership lids in your life, you've got to act on what you learn. You've got to act on what you learn. Here these men are, are learning something new. They didn't know about the Holy Spirit. They didn't know about baptism. They thought their, their, their baptism with John was good. No, but they've learned something new, and then they follow in believer's baptism is what we call it. And, and so this is, this is huge. If you hear a good sermon, if you read a good book, this is all great and wonderful, 
But if you don't apply it to your life, it just puffs up your ego. It just, you know, puffs up your pride. You've actually got to apply the things that you actually hear and learn so that you can grow. That's, that's a real leadership lid lifter in your life when you start applying what you learn. These men do that. Now, my, my question for you is why do they have to get rebaptized? Why can't John's baptism work? Why can't they just say, yeah, we got in the water and we went under the water. And so, yeah, now we, we've had a conversion experience. We, you know, our faith is in Jesus now. He has saved us. So we're just going to lean on the, the baptism that John gave us. And, and, the, and the reality here, why they needed to get baptized is because you are converted and then you follow in believer's baptism. And so John's baptism was, hey, get ready for the Messiah. You got wet, yeah, but it wasn't a symbol of you coming to faith in Jesus. And you see, that's what baptism is. And so over and over and over in the New Testament, you know, we see that people are converted in their faith in Jesus. They experience salvation and then they follow in baptism. And they don't lean on previous baptisms. They don't lean on previous, you know, experiences. They realize that, okay, my conversion happened at this point in my life. And so now I follow in believer's baptism. Now I know in the room today, there are people who were baptized as, as a kid or Maybe you were baptized as a baby, I don't know, but nowhere in the New Testament do we see babies get baptized. I, I, I think parents in, in different denominations, you know, their intention is, is, is well and good, but that baptism did not symbolize anything for you. You, you were just getting wet, right? Because, because getting in the, the pools of baptism is really a symbol of the inward commitment that you have made and that, have, that you have experienced. And so we talk to people all the time in our church who, you know, in this culture, especially in the South, you know, you went to a vacation Bible school. Chances are, you know, you went on a Wednesday night. Chances are you went to a revival as a kid. And so a lot of people had an experience as a kid and, and they walked forward and they shook a pastor's hand and they, they got baptized and then they live like, you know, the devil during high school and college. And now you're a little bit older and you, you, you realize that something's not quite right. So you come to our church, you hear the gospel over a course of several weeks and you come at some point to a realization, something is not quite right. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had that, that people have said, okay, you know what, you, you led us in a prayer a week ago or two months ago or, you know, whatever, and, and I prayed that prayer and, and, and like, you know, I really felt like that was my conversion experience. And I've been leaning on a, a, an experience as a kid or, or whatever, and, 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 and so now I kind of realized that, that I wasn't really symbolizing anything at that time, and, and, and my conversion happened when I was 19 or it happened when I was 20, whatever, and, and so now I would say get baptized. I would say now you, you have grown and you experience like the scriptures and you kind of have a fuller sense. You've, you, you've learned some new truths as you've been here. And now it's time to act on what you have learned and follow believers' baptism. Scripture tells us in Romans 6, 4, that we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. 
So when we baptize people, we, we are symbolizing the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. We, we say, as I baptize, you go under the water, buried with him in baptism. Why? Because that's the symbol. We are identifying with the death of Jesus. And I'm saying, as, as someone who is getting baptized, that, that the old Trent died, and, and he is buried. And then when you come up out of the water, we say, and rises to walk in newness of life forever. Why? Because Christ rose from the grave I have been reborn. It is a new birth. And that's the symbolism that's taken place here. And so if you've never done that after your conversion experience, next Sunday I'm gonna, I am gonna baptize in all three services and I want you to join us. I want you to join me. I want you to walk out of these rooms today, go to the care and prayer room and say, I need to be baptized. Act on what you learn. Stop making excuses. Stop letting your pride fill you up so that you continue to come up with reasons to why you shouldn't do this, act on what you've learned. In fact, your disobedience is a lid in your leadership, and it could be impacting the way that you lead your family. I know it's impacting the way you lead your family, the way it's impacting how you lead at work, and definitely how you lead in this church. And so act on what you learn. Act on what you learn. Get a coach, get a coach and act on what you learn. Let's look at verse 8 now. In verse 8, it's talking about Paul, and he says that he entered the synagogue for three months, and he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way, and at this time the way is how they you know, taught or, or um you know, labeled Christianity. And so speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And so when you add up the months that 18 and 19 talk about this, and even in the book of Ephesians, uh, scholars believe that he was doing this for a total of three years in Ephesus. And so um, I think it's an important point I want to make here. But let me just ask you, have you ever just felt exhausted and you were so spent and you were so tired you walked into your bedroom, you fell, you know, into bed, and as soon as your head hit the pillow, you were out. Anybody experienced that lately? Like you were just so, it's okay, I'm not going to call you out. It, okay, we've all experienced that exhaustion. I remember one of, the, one of the times that I was so exhausted, I fell asleep and didn't mean to fall asleep. Um, several years ago, we were building a house, and I had the great idea that I was going to lay the hardwood floors to, to you know, save some money. I had never done that before. I have zero experience in the carpentry industry, but it's laying down a few planks of wood, right? I mean, what, what's so hard about that? So I was young and dumb, and I decided to go for it, and I got all the wood there, and I start, I start laying the wood, and, you know, it's kind of forming up. My wife comes over to check it out. She's kind of my, you know, my resident project manager on stuff like this, and, and she walked in, and she was like, well, honey, um, isn't it supposed to like be straight? <laughs> it's like kind of doing one of these deals right here. And I'm like, yeah, 
It is supposed to be straight. So here I go, two hours of ripping up what I just had done and, and then going back at it, you know, and, and uh, going slowly and trying to figure out. And man, figuring out all the dimensions and I don't know all those little numbers, all those little hash marks on the measuring thing. I just kind of go, okay, I know what a half is and then there's three more marks. And so if that's what you're doing, man, don't, don't try to do what I was doing, right? And so, so I'm like, how, how far was that? Oh, yeah, that was two feet and a half and a couple hash marks. Okay, got it. Um, and so I, I'm 10 hours in this day, and I haven't hardly made a dent, you know. And if you've done this, your knees start hurting. I mean, your back is sore. It's, it's back-breaking work, and not here I am all alone. And next day, another 10 hours. I remember at the end of that day, I was by myself. I was so exhausted. I laid down on the, the hardwood that I had laid, not too pretty, but it was there. And I, I was exhausted and, and I just fell asleep. And my wife called me on the phone and woke me up. She's like, how's it going? I'm like, going great. <laughs> Everything's great, you know? And she, she, she finally admitted what, what was happening. She looked at it again and she was like, Trent, here's the deal. I love you, but you gotta call the man. Gotta call the man. How many wives in the room have told your husband, call the man? That's been my... My wife's favorite phrase for the last several years, Trent called me. Anytime she sees me put on a tool belt and I walk in, she's like, Trent, call the man, right? That's an old Andy Griffith show that we watched and love. But man, I was exhausted that night. And we've all kind of experienced like some exhausting moments in our life. We've taken the kids to practice. We've worked hard. We've run here. We've eaten on the run. And we're just exhausted. But my question for you is, have you ever been exhausted by gospel work? Can you think of the last time that you were serving the Lord with, with so much effort and energy that you went home and you fell in bed for a glorious night of rest because you had laid it all on the line for Jesus? Has that ever happened to you? Here's what's happening in the text that you may not be seeing yet, but Paul is a tent maker. Remember first of chapter 18, he's, he's, he's working to subsidize his income. And, and as he's doing this, uh, in this culture, they would get up really, really early and they would work till lunch because it, it's a really uh, hot climate there. And so they would take a siesta somewhere around 11 to four o'clock. Uh, how many in favor of the siesta uh, coming to America? But uh, this is what they experienced. But it's not like they just kind of laid out and took a nap. They were, they were waking up to crack of dawn, right? Sun's up, boom, we're working, right? 11 uh, o'clock, they're kind of, you know, hitting lunch. And then from 11 to 4, while everybody else has taken a nap, Paul's meeting with all the disciples in a man by the name of Tyrannus's hall. As a lot of people believe it was a school. And so they meet there during the siesta. Everybody else has taken a nap. They're making disciples. Get up at the crack of dawn, work your tail off, then go teach for four or five hours while everybody else is taking a nap. And then at night, Acts chapter 20 tells us that Paul was then going house to house, encouraging and teaching the disciples. So small groups, the church was meeting in people's homes at this time. So he's waking up at the crack of dawn, getting his income, providing, you know, putting food on the table, paying the bills, teaching for four or five hours while everybody else is taking a nap. Once that's over, now we're going house to house, training and teaching and preaching the gospel. When I read this, I see a dude that is sold out in, 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 in an effort to labor for gospel ministry. 
Some of you are like, I am not a full-time pastor like you, Trent, so I, I can't really do that. I've got a job. And I would say, slow the roll for a minute. Paul, working as a tent maker, teaching morning, noon, and evening. Guys like Apollos were just normal leaders. They weren't like apostles. You know, they weren't leading the church at this time. They were just leading in the ministry of the church. Tyrannus, we don't know much about him, but, but here is a normal dude who is offering, you know, his resources to say, yeah, do it here. Let, let's talk about Jesus here. And, and, and he's just a normal guy. Priscilla and Aquila, they, they aren't apostles, but these are men and women who were planning churches and, and, and totally wringing out their life for the gospel. And I would say that there's some leadership lids in the room today. And the reason why it's there is because we have not made a commitment to labor for the gospel. And because we are laboring for ourselves and for our little kingdom, and we are not laying it on the line for Jesus, we're not exhausting ourselves in gospel ministry, we're not laboring for the gospel, there's a huge leadership lid in your life. And it's causing you to continue to build that little kingdom, causing you to continue to focus on your little efforts and your little family and your little world, and you're missing the call that Jesus has upon your life. Jesus said in Matthew 9, he said, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out laborers into his harvest field. Hey, the harvest is plentiful, but we need laborers. We need workers. We need people who are willing to lay it on the line. We need people who want to work their tail off for the gospel. Look, we're called to push back the darkness of Satan and lead people into a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Do you really think that's gonna be easy? We're fighting for the souls of men and women and the next generation. Do you really think that's going to be easy? It's gonna take a lot of work. It's gonna be exhausting and frustrating. You're not gonna understand everything that's happening around you and you're gonna be tempted to quit and to not care. But when we see verse 10, we see as a result of this effort and this work, that all the residents of Asia hear the word of the Lord. That is, a, that is an amazing verse to me. What if all the residents of Blunt County heard the word of the Lord? Heard the word of the Lord, like just heard the gospel. Now, we're not gonna save everybody because that's not our job. That's God's job to save. We are the workers, we are the laborers called to share this message, to share this gospel. Last week, we, we held a training and uh, we talked about our strategy that is, is not gonna just get accomplished between now and Easter. It's not like, hey, we're gonna share with everybody in Blunt County and we're gonna be done with all, you know, thousand whatever people. This is an ongoing process, but here, here's, a, here's a good push and what we believe is gonna make, you know, hopefully a dent in the lostness of our county. And so um, if you missed it, you can go online today, foothillschurch.com. Um, click no place left. 
There's a short video that I did explaining the three goals and the, and the three efforts that we're trying to accomplish. And it basically boils down to this. We want to pray over every single house in this county. And there's an app for that, by the way. And so we've got it. You can sign up for it by going to the website and basically take a walk in your neighborhood, take a walk down the street. There are prayers listed for you so that you can kind of have an idea of what you need to pray for. But we're literally gonna walk around and we're gonna prayer walk over every single home in the county. And I believe we can do it. And I believe we can do that by Easter. And so uh, the folks that came this past week, we've already prayed over a thousand homes and uh, we need you. We need laborers, we need workers. So you're gonna have to get out of the house and go take a walk for the glory of God, right? That's a good idea anyway, you know? And, and, and just take the app and pray over these homes as, as you're going. The second thing we're asking you to do is to leverage social media. And so uh, instead of just leveraging it to share how cool we are, let's use it and the hundreds of people that we are connected with online for the gospel. So we're gonna, uh, in two weeks, we're gonna start sharing some stories and a lot of things um, that I believe will help encourage those in your circles uh, to think more deeply about the gospel. And so everything that Foothills Church shares and posts, we need you to share, retweet, post, like, all that good stuff. And that's an effort to, to, to begin to expand our influence as, as a leader. And, and then thirdly, uh, we have a personal invitation that we want to give to people. And so um, it's as simple as a, a little thing that like hangs on doorknobs. And so all you got to do is walk around your neighborhood and put these on, on doorknobs. And if it leads to conversations, great. If, if you're just kind of going to hang and go, that's cool too. Um, but we want to have a personal invite to everybody in your neighborhood. And so um, we've got a whole map of Blount County. It's divided into eight different districts. And uh, we're looking for district leaders of each one of these areas so that they'll be the point person to say, hey, you know, we, we did this neighborhood, so we don't want to have to do that one again. Cool, because we don't want to like bombard people with the same stuff. That gets annoying. And so that district leader will, will, will help us cover your area. And so you're going to be able to connect with that person on March 18th. That's when that whole week is going to be a, hey, go pass out these personal invitations uh, during that week. And, and we think that just this, these simple three steps, starting with prayer, sharing, inviting, is going to lift some leadership lids in this room. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, people are going to come to faith as a result of this. They're going to get connected here. They're going to experience Jesus here but we need laborers, we need workers. We need some folks who'll go work nine to five, put 40, 50 hours in a, at their job, and then come home and put another several hours in for the gospel, right? Now, the great thing about this whole idea is that we don't have to work and labor to earn God's love. That's not why we do this. We don't labor for the gospel to try to get Jesus to love us. We can't earn our salvation. We labor for the gospel because Christ labored on the cross. And it's because of his work, his death, and his resurrection that we can come to faith in him. And then we don't have to work for our salvation. Now it's our joy and our privilege to serve and to work for him. Once we experience that grace, we want other people to experience that grace and love. And and so I want to close today with, with us just spending some time uh, taking and receiving the Lord's Supper and then just examining our life. Examine what sin is in your life. Examine what attitudes are in your life. 
Examine if there is uh, some pride there not receiving a coach in your life. Are you not acting on the next step that God is calling you to? Let's, let's baptize you next week. Let's take this step. And for some of you, it's just this idea that, man, I, I need to work and I need to labor. And some of you are doing that. And, and, and it's like, maybe this is just encouragement for you. Like, yeah, you're doing it, man. You're, you're laboring. You're leading a small group every week. That's incredible. Serving in a ministry. It's not easy. But God will bless you and use that ministry for his glory and his good. If our volunteers would go ahead and get ready to hand out uh, the Lord's Supper as you receive it, you pray over it, you, you take the bread, you take the juice. Uh, when you are ready to receive that, our band is going to come out and lead us. If you do not know Jesus as your Lord and Savior today, I want to encourage you to go to the care and prayer room and tell him, I need Jesus. By the way, if your kids are in the room, the Lord's Supper is not for anyone that has not put their faith in Christ. And so this is, again, a symbol of, of what we've experienced. And so just like baptism, the Lord's Supper is, is this remembrance and symbol of what's happened inside of our life. And so uh, to that end, let's pray and ask God's blessing upon our closing moments here. Father, we are grateful for the love and sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. For those in the room who do not know you, I pray, God, that they would take that step, receive you by faith. For those that need to take a, a next step and, and be baptized, we pray, God, that you would give them boldness to do that. We pray that you would use our efforts and our work to bless other people with the gospel. May you use the prayers that we're about to offer up as a church for all of these residents in Blunt County. May you hear our prayer and would you work in lives. May we see a fresh wind and fresh fire of the Holy Spirit move through this place. Lord, may it start in our own heart today as we reflect upon sin that we need to turn from today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. More information about Foothills Church can be found online at foothillschurch.com.